0: So in the show notes, you'll always be able to find the link to watch the video on our YouTube channel and make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. Thank you so much for supporting the show and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Recruitment Mentors podcast. I'm your host, Hisham Aziz. And on this week's episode, I was joined by Ash Goodwin. After working in the police for six years, he had a career change and he found himself working in the recruitment industry. After nearly three years working for a company, climbing the ranks and becoming one of their top performers, he then started his entrepreneurial journey just before COVID and launched his recruitment business called Our Door Talent. He then more recently, nearly two years ago, went on to start Another recruitment business called My Product Path, which is a SaaS service, a self-serve play, as well as a recruitment company. I'll be honest, I challenged Ash a lot in this episode in terms of the way that they're thinking about the future of recruitment, how he thinks it will be. I definitely pushed on a number of things that he thought in a healthy way. But we also, as we like to do, broke down his approach to winning business, standing out, mindset, and so much more. Ash, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. No, yeah, thanks for um, coming to the studio. I appreciate it. Obviously we crossed paths or spoken a couple of times on LinkedIn, haven't we? And I know you're extremely passionate about changing the perception of the industry. Correct, yeah. A bit like I am. And also I think what prompted us doing this was sort of the way that you're building your more recent recruitment business is really centered around changing the perception of the industry, doing things differently, I think you said that there's a lot of people on LinkedIn talking about doing things differently, but are they actually doing it? One million percent. You believe that, yeah, the way that you're trying to build things, you are actually doing it. So I'm, I'm excited to dive into how Ash is approaching on actually actioning that. But I guess just to, like I always sort of like to start with, just to paint a bit of colour on Ash's journey so far. So if I'm missing anything, <laughs> let me know. So you worked in the police for over six years? Yep, yeah, correct. Definitely going to talk about that, <laughs> from police to recruitment. You then sort of worked in recruitment, employed for a business, businesses for yeah, nearly three years. Where you had sort of early success was a uh, minor contract services, right? Yeah, correct. So you worked there for two and a half years, uh, became one of the high performers there. And then August 2019, or in 2019, you then started Our Door Talent, your yep. own recruitment business. Couple of months. Seven months, half a year before COVID. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, <laughs> so so you started started your own business then, and you've been on an entrepreneurial journey since then, right? So yeah, you've been on an entrepreneurial journey since 2019. Um, yeah, initially started that with Ardo Talent, but then. Nearly eighteen months ago you started a other recruitment business called My Product Path with your co founder Sean, who's a product expert, worked in the in the product world for how many years? And now it's more of like a, a group. Ardor Talent does more finance property or not? Yeah, so property technology, finance mm. compliance. Ardor
1: will be winding down and be spitting out more arms of my product path. So my finance path, my compliance path, etc.
0: Yeah, cool. So yeah, so then and then yeah, my product path, I feel like from I don't know, you tell me, but I feel like that's where you see long term, what the main focus is going to be, like you just said. Yeah, 1 million percent.
1: It's almost like our innovation
0: hub, Mm. and then it's become forefront of the business. Cool. And then so like you kind of shared with me, so in your last financial year, you put it as a group, right? In terms of this? So yeah, there's correct. 14 of you mm-hmm. today and then basically a yeah, combined group turnover in the last one actually 1.4 million and 780 grand in GP and for my product path specifically just under 300 grand in gross profit. So I feel like yeah, you've been on an interesting journey, right? <laughs> like things have evolved, met your co-founder, started that. So yeah, I'm really excited to to get into this. And I think the way that we'll break this down is let's definitely talk about, Ash, the recruiter, get into the detail of that, and then we'll we'll dive into the entrepreneurial journey, things that you, you've had to learn, um, and we'll focus on that. But I guess where we always like to start, million-pound question, something you've probably thought about since having your own business. Yeah. What's Ash's take on, what are the characteristics and traits that make up a, a highly successful recruit in today's market? Let, let's start there. Yeah, I always love this question,
1: and I'm going to answer it non-traditionally. So I've obviously listened to your podcast historically, and everyone says work ethic, et cetera. Yeah. So... One question I always ask at interview is, what is the greatest challenge you've overcome? Mm. And the reason why I ask that question is because I'm looking for resilience. It's a key factor of a successful recruiter. And once somebody understands the process of overcoming a challenge, they can translate that into recruitment because in recruitment every single day, we have challenges every single day thrown out as left, right, and center. So resilience for me is a massive, massive factor. And that's coupled with discipline. Motivation will get you to start something and discipline will get you to finish it. The person who's disciplined will always outwork and outbeat somebody who's just got a bit of motivation here and there and I think that's the difference between a hard worker and somebody who works hard. There's two differences there. Someone can work hard for a period of time but the hard worker who's disciplined can do the micro tasks and get to the macro level by doing that. And I think the third point I'll go through here is a problem identifier and a problem solver. The job of a salesperson is to find pain points and needs and provide solutions for that. So someone who's really, really good at uncovering that is incredibly successful in recruitment because fundamentally that's the job of a salesperson. Mm. So I think they're the three which I would identify as I guess the key characteristics and just to add another one in there is the executor. I've had people in my business over the last couple of years who've had fantastic ideas but can't execute. So. Having fantastic ideas, you need that in your company. You need somebody to challenge you from a continuous improvement perspective. However, when you compare them against the executor, the executor will provide better service and outbill the person with the good ideas because the person with good ideas thinks that that's the only way to do it because it's their way. So I would take someone with 99% execution and 1% ideas over 99% ideas and 1% execution every single day of the week. There's so many more to it, but they're the four things that I probably look for closely when I'm interviewing recruiters because I know that I can use that and make them successful and bring the best out of them.
0: So let me, let me ask you then, Ash, mm-hmm. what's been the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome? What, from recruitment or in business? If you was to be asked that question, how would you answer it?
1: From a personal aspect, it was when I left the police to transition into a new career. Mm. I went through a real, real dark period and you get an exclusive here cause I've not spoken about this in public, <laughs> exclusive. but I went through a super, super dark period from a mental aspect. I was completely, completely lost. So the biggest challenge that I've overcome is learning how to walk away from a job, which is fundamentally a career, moving to something which is the fitness industry where everyone says you should follow your passion. I did that. I began to hate it. <laughs> I resented the thing that I was, I loved the most. I really hated it. I had no money. I was in a complete dark period, completely lost. So the biggest challenge I overcome was overcoming the mental aspects of Ash and then relearning who I was, having to relearn empathy. Because when you're in the police, you have have empathy for people, but you have, like, bad stuff happens all the time. One of my friends came to me and said, my grandad passed away. And I went, okay, well, unfortunately, people die. Like, that's just part of life. Mm. I'm not a friend there. I'm a robot. So relearning the empathy side of things of life was was really interesting. So from my perspective, it's overcoming the mental challenges of myself. That's the hardest thing I've ever done. When you come out the other side of it, you're fearless and and you're so powerful. You're literally like Superman or woman because no one putting the phone down on you can ever hurt you. It doesn't doesn't matter, does it? Mm. You've beaten yourself up enough mentally. The rest of it's fine.
0: No, thank you for sharing that. I think a lot of people can find themselves in those moments. So let, if, if you don't mind, let's just talk about that for a sec because yeah, I, th- I think this would be helpful for people. Mm-hmm. So being lost, what did that actually look like? So are you talking about, yeah, you was in in the police, which I'm assuming people around you or sort of the people that you could look up to had been doing it for over a decade or it was like their entire life. And you obviously left that after six years. So was it what the hell do I do now? And sort of dealing with those types of questions. So when I was in
1: the police, I was one of the first people, not the first people, but I started, I've always had businesses on the side. So when I was in the police, I I got paid extra to do like modeling and Hollister stuff and all that great stuff. And then I started selling fitness plans and then I sold makeup and I was selling (laughs) makeup. I was selling anything that I could do and I was making more money from doing that than what I was in the police. And I knew it was the right time to leave the police because I wanted to live a life where I could be home to see my children. My wife wouldn't be worrying whenever you go out, and, and an unfortunate event happened in the place where two of my colleagues were unfortunately murdered, and that was a moment when I was like, I'm 23 years of age at the time, I'm not doing this forever, wow. so I'm, I'm getting out, I'm going. And it was kind of like, when you leave, and then you pursue your passion, I pursued fitness, it was my passion, mm. I competed, I was onto a good thing, and when you start to hate your passion, mm. it contradicts everything that everyone says where you should follow your passion. And it was more the aspect of thinking I had it figured out by following the fitness sector and realizing that I just wasn't right. That's my personal passion, not my career passion, which are two different things. And then you just beat yourself up. You feel like you've failed. Mm. And I failed at like probably three or four different businesses trying to create businesses during that period. And then I did the fitness sector, which it was a shoe in It was a dead cert. I, I, I had to be successful at it didn't work it was working but i was miserable so it was more i was at thought i was at the end of my journey with failure when it was actually at the start of the journey and i, I had to just relearn myself it's like an evolution period everyone goes through it you have to learn about who you are and what you are and then you become entirely content with yourself and then you can move forward but as you go through that journey in that period where you're lost and you don't know who you are you don't know what your values are anymore you're just completely like you just can't see through to what, like, the, the end of the road. That was probably the most challenging aspect to come through. And I think every person in the world goes through this. Yeah, definitely. Like, that's a dead cert. I think the thing to get through is just realizing that when you're in a tough period, just don't stop, keep going. Take a moment to s- reflect, look at your good points and bad points, but keep moving forward. So for me, it was, lo- I, I felt like I'd lost it all. I had no idea what I wanted to do next. Like, no idea.
0: Mm. It's a scary place to be, isn't it? Yeah.
1: And I had no degree as well, so no degree, no, nothing to fall back on.
2: Mm.
1: I was all in. <laughs> mm. And it just didn't work out, which was a blessing in disguise.
2: Mm.
1: And we found the world of recruitment. I did. <laughs> I did. I did what everyone does. I got into Google. I was like, what am I good at? I'm good with people. I'm good at solving problems. That's a good starting point. I Googled it and I also wanted to make money, which is why everyone gets into recruitment. And the recruitment was the first one which came up and goes well i don't see why i can't do that and i just
0: applied mm. so let's just talk about like looking back at ash being employed because mm-hmm. i feel like that sort of journey says a lot as to like why you've ended up sort of where you've ended up so far i feel like like clearly you had that sort of entrepreneurial energy and spirit quite early on you were sort of thinking how can i support myself how can i be reliant on myself yeah and um, it seems like even when you was in in the police I think that, that goes back to being a kid. Like I think it all starts there. It's the old cliche
1: selling mm. stuff and selling cigarettes, sweets, washing cars, getting your mate to wash your cars with you and taking half the money. Like the whole journey there. It started there. But entrepreneurialism when I was what twenty two years ago, twenty years ago, we didn't have social media, so you didn't really know mm. if it's inherent in you. You don't actually. You didn't know it back then. Mm. So that's why I went to the police to learn discipline, and then obviously. As social media become more paramount and I started to learn more about myself. I was like, I actually
0: need to be doing this. Mm. Looking back, where did you struggle the most when you was employed in, like, so obviously you worked to how do you pronounce it, Marnay or? Uh, Maine. Maine. Yeah. What were some of your biggest challenges early on in, in that business? Because was it, is it contract or was it perm? Uh,
1: both. both. So yeah, they, they, Maine are a great company. They do lots in engineering and in and defense and, and my job was to come in and actually help shape and grow a technology desk mm. the ceo gary is a fantastic guy he's a he's a really good leader i'm a hard person to manage i'm so self-sufficient you can leave me alone i'll go and do it i'll i'll grow something and i'll do something fantastic i'm easy in terms of to manage from from that aspect but i'm hard in terms of like i will always push continuous improvement <laughs> i will because i want to work for the best company possible and i think the biggest I guess challenge there was understanding, it took me a couple of years to figure this out, that my vision and their vision was different. Mm. And that's okay. It just meant that my vision didn't align with their vision anymore. So it's more the vision aspect, which is the reason why I kind of left. Mm. It's because I kind of saw recruitment going a different avenue to what, to what they did. Mm. And that was okay because their business wasn't fit for my purpose
0: long term, it was fit for their purpose. Mm. Okay. Because obviously I, I wrote down when we prepared for this mm-hmm. that you became one of the top performers quite quickly. Yeah, correct. A big part of that from what you shared with me was around how you got good at winning new business, building partnerships, something mm-hmm. that you said you, you feel you're great at. Why were you able to get some sort of early success on, on the business development side, do you think? Why was you able to do that? A lot of people struggle yeah. with that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I, when I left the turnover, of the business union was 2.6 million. And that's in the two and a half year period, so yeah. it was quick success. What I realized I was very good at, and it's the ability to be ruthlessly tenacious. So, if you think about bodybuilding and translating the bodybuilding world to business development, when I was competing, you do a twelve week cut and. Four, I think it's like two weeks out, I was doing 1,000 calories on the Stairmaster an hour on the Stairmaster three, four times a week, as oh well as 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 well as doing weight training like seven, eight times a week. It was, And then you're on like fourteen, fifteen hundred 1,500 calories. It was ruthless. When you go through the period, and this is interesting because I use this as an analogy to my consultants, is translating a process which works into business development. When you're on the Stairmaster, first five minutes you're thinking, I've got this. Well, most people are thinking, I've got this. And then the next five minutes you're thinking, why have I started? <laughs> Then the next time you're thinking, I, I, I can't do this. I don't think I can do this. Then you get halfway thinking, I just want to start, but can I get going? Then you get to 40 minutes, and you're like, I've got this. And that first part of the journey is always the hardest bit with business development. And it's just like being on a Stairmaster or whatever your interest is, whatever's hard, translate that to business development. And with business development, it's initially a numbers game. My mission was to bring on as many clients as I could in the fastest period possible. I brought on a travel company, which almost changed my life. As a travel company, as a financial services company, it's two different stories, but the travel company, right funding, right time, and my ability to build relationships off the back of just, I guess, being myself, that's how I won the business. And then it was not only that, it was taking them out to dinner, landing them, expanding them, getting introduced to the next person, then the next person, and then mm. the next person. But fundamentally, you're the problem solver. They know they come to me, I'll, I will work through the night, I'll work over the weekends, I will get the job done, so that they can grow their business and they can grow their teams. So it's a mixture of being reliable, tenacious, consistent, and understanding what they want. So understanding what the hiring manager actually wants, versus what you think that they want. Mm. So from a business development standpoint, Three biggest partners that i brought on were all in the first year and that wasn't by luck that was from work ethic five o'clock till seven o'clock in the evening i kind of worked those two hours where everyone had gone home at half five sending out sales emails specking candidates over who were reliable to so relevant to the, to the right parties i did that day in day out week in week out for an 18 month period and that's kind of what helped to grow the business i outworked everybody else in the office
0: mm. so if it's cool with you mm-hmm. We've spoken a a lot about this recently on the podcast and I think people have really appreciated it. So you can maybe take experiences of now with my product path or more recent with um, your own business. But I guess I really like the way that you broke down that Stairmaster experience. Like I think a lot of people relate to that. Like you said, I think it is is so true. Those first five minutes, you've got it. Then after that, you're like, why the fuck have I done this? (laughs) Like like, I, I couldn't relate more. So that makes complete sense. So... I guess taking that then into the business development context, mm-hmm. I think that that makes complete sense. So I guess what does Ash's like business development strategy now look like? Do you know what I mean? So if, and we can break that down where you're you're making sure you do the things even though you may not want to be doing them or just how that translates, it'd be good to just get your perspective on that or how you now approach things because I think this will be really helpful for people. So mm-hmm. let's just say, I don't know, now with my product path, you've got 10 dream clients, you know who they are you feel like you can solve their problems, add tremendous amounts of value to them. What is Ash's strategy that, like you said, sometimes you may not want to do it, but you know you need to do it Mm -hmm. to take those people from not knowing who you are to having that first meeting with you where you get the opportunity to sort of showcase this is what I'm about, this is why I'm someone that's reliable. Like Just talk to us and feel free to go as grand as you want, but what, what does that look like? This podcast is proudly sponsored by Sourcebreaker. I think it's safe to say that in the past two years, the recruitment industry has seen a historical shift. It has been inundated with vacancies, a candidate shortage, and many new recruiters joining the industry. In this candidate-led market, business development hasn't been a priority for many. With this shift in the mist and with many new recruiters now in the industry, the next generation of rookies need to upskill and fast on how to get those much needed job leads. This is why I wanted to introduce Sourcebreaker, the recruitment platform that's transforming the way recruiters work. With Sourcebreaker, recruiters can quickly upskill with a market intelligence suite designed to effectively pursue BD opportunities, all from one place giving your teams a competitive edge in an increasingly changing market. Basically, you spend less time sourcing the internet to find companies that could be hiring. With leads at your fingertips, there's more time to spend on converting leads into placements. Book a SourceBreaker demo today and see the difference the platform can make. And as you listen to this podcast, you will get a unique discount on this fantastic product.
1: Yeah, I think there are two parts of the question because you've got Ash as a recruitment consultant in Maine mm. and you've got Ash now where I've already got a client base. Mm. I can pick and choose almost who I want to work with. Mm. What I've always done is in order for me to sell a company and sell a position, I've got to be passionate about the person and the company. So first and foremost, I'm looking at, okay, which companies are doing things, in my opinion, ethically in the correct way. I don't want to be partnering with companies where you hear horror stories about people leaving after four or five months continuously, not just anomalies, continuously. So my business development plan is now more, okay, who can I add value to and who can add value to me? It's a two-way street, business development is. And when you start out, you always think it's a one-way street because you put the senior people on the pedestal. You do. Back here, it was the micro steps. It was hitting the KPIs, hitting the numbers. It is a numbers game. It's getting people to, it's, it's been planned. So planning is super critical to being successful in recruitment. Four to five every day I'd be planning. Five to seven, I'll be doing all my sales, emails, spec, and CVs. Nine to eleven every single day, I'd be calling. I'd be I'd have a targeted list in specific industries that you call. Now, when people get into recruitment, they say, I want to work in the sports industry because gaming's really cool, or, or whatever it is. Just just kind of that's kind of what they say. I ended up in travel and then ended up in data. And then, then SaaS, like there are industries I didn't even think about, but it's where I got the results. And then you build an almost a business off the back of it. If I'm working with a FTSE listed business, one of the biggest companies in the world, which we've worked with for the last seven years, I'm going to use them to market out to other companies Mm. because it's a clever way to do business and people want to work with the best. They do. And if they know you're delivering talent to those, to those companies. So I think when you're starting out, you almost go for everything. And then it's like a big, it's like the sales funnel, you start with everything and then you get to this stage here like, okay, now I'm at this stage here now where I'm like, okay, who do I wanna work with? Why should I reach out to them? Because people reach out to me now. So it's almost a two, my my BD plan is now a two-way street versus how is my product path gonna benefit this company in the future? Because we're not right to work with everybody. At the start of your journey, you wanna work with everybody everybody, and that's like, that's part of business. So my business plan now is more structured around how we can add value. I still cold call. Mm. I actually personally love it. I really like it. I'm sat there with the lads in the office and and the girls in the office cold calling. So it's more having a a structured plan, but having a plan which is long-term, I'm talking five years down the line, which of these customers do we want to be working with? What products are they building, which are really cool? How can we supply the people to build those products out? Because I'm going to probably use that product. And yeah, you feel quite proud of the fact you supplied the right people. So my business plan now is more around that. But back when I first started, it was more around volume numbers, where basically where can you get the the wins quicker.
2: Mm.
1: At month 10, I learned how to win exclusivity. And that's what changed my career in recruitment.
0: You learn how to win exclusivity. Yeah.
1: i won my first I won a director of IT exclusive role with a company in, in Leicester. So a company called Cambridge County's Bank. Fantastic business. I've worked with them for a long time.
2: Mm.
1: And I won exclusivity on that on that one role. And I came out and I realized what my worth was. And then when you do that in recruitment, you don't settle for competing against five companies anymore. You've done it once. You can do the process over and over and over and over.
0: Mm. Well, let's talk about that then. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be helpful. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Maybe this will bring it out. But what was Ash doing in a, so I'm assuming, did you sort of ask for exclusivity in the client meeting? Yeah. Okay, cool. What did a client meeting look like? You didn't get exclusivity. So maybe six months in, what questions were you asking? What were you focusing on? To then, what did that meeting look like and how different was it when you did get exclusivity when you like 10 months in, as you said? Mm-hmm. What were like the main differences? Like, yeah, I'd be interested because I think that'll bring to life the different types of questions you're asking, what you're focusing on rather than what you ended up focusing on when you walked away understanding your worth with exclusivity. And like you said, that sort of changed your career. So yeah, how different were the meetings?
1: A lot of it was confidence. So when I was at my first recruitment company, they laboured the point of booking meetings and going out on meetings and getting in front of people. And when you do it when you first start, the meetings are generally, I wouldn't say rubbish, but you're learning and you're gaining experience and there's no structure. And my meetings were all around the people, getting the people to talk, not talking about recruitment and then getting people to like me I like them and that's how you win business and that's kind of like the first 6 months was just around I was almost you can you can smell the not smell the desperation <laughs> you can almost smell the desperation of this recruiter really needs this
2: mm.
1: whereas at month 10 I'd actually already worked with one of the HR managers in the previous company I did five deals with her during that period but she also had a, a boss who I had to get on side so I kind of had I had half a hunch I could do it mm. and I think that ability to understand that you can do it. Like you, you yourself here. selfish yeah, when you've been on meetings before. I get myself so psyched up now for meetings that I've already won the business before I even go in. And that's what I did on that day. Whereas these meetings here, it's almost like you're, you're faking it a little bit. You, you know, you're, you know, you, you know, you're not bad at recruitment, but are you confident you're better than anyone else out there? Probably not at that stage. So those meetings here were just a bit more looking back, not great, understandably. And there's nothing, there's no targeted outcomes that I wanted from those meetings. just go to some meetings, hopefully win business, come back to the office. This Mm. meeting here was specifically for one job. I had to go and pitch for it. So I got the data, got all the LinkedIn data, had case studies. I was probably the most prepared I've ever been for a meeting in my life. And then in that meeting, I asked them point blank, I only work exclusively. How would you feel about working exclusively on this role? I didn't only work exclusively at the time. Mm. but I said it because I'm like, I need to win this exclusive. I'm not gonna do this role where I'm competing. I don't wanna do that life anymore. And they were bought in. And, mm. they, and they said, might need some time to think about. I go, well, let me just kind of stop you there. Like when people say this because I'm not convinced, it taught me through the reason why you need more time. And then I was able to answer the question and then we won the business and I closed there. So it was that almost that switch where before I probably would have gone like here, I'd have gone, all right, okay. Yeah, I look forward to hearing from you. Mm. Whereas in this moment, it was like, no, I'm winning this. I'm not gonna leave this office until I've won this business. And that was the difference in the two meetings here versus the meeting here, there's a targeted outcome. There's no targeted outcomes here.
0: What was that question you just said? Because that's very helpful for people.
1: Well, about exclusivity.
0: So Um, basically, so like you just said, it was, they said, Ash, I think I might as have to think about it, and you replied with, typically when people say that they're still unsure, mm -hmm. what is it that you're unsure about?
1: Yeah, correct, because it's true. And, and I think you and I have both been in meetings before where they say that and people say this often and, and it's always the case that they're not entirely convinced by you yet mm. or you haven't sold your solution well enough. So when anyone says that to me, I always circle back, I'm like, okay, fantastic and obviously appreciate that. My experience suggests that when people say this is because I'm not entirely convinced So what part of the process you're not convinced about and then you get an opportunity to then overcome the objection again and sell the solution. So. It was that bit there, which I'll be honest, I learned that from a a YouTube video on on sales. Mm. I thought, I'm just going to try it. (laughs) And it worked. And it's one of those things where I was like, okay, now I'm going to do it again. Then I can now put it into my language seven years later. Mm. as to how I would do it now. But back then it was like, I was almost obsessed with sales to a point where outside of work, I was always self-developing and improving and trying stuff. And eventually when you're trying stuff, some stuff works for you, some doesn't. And that was just one of the things which worked in that period.
0: Yeah. And then just to wrap that up, I know we've gone granular yeah. here, but I know people uh, yes, really okay. enjoy this stuff. So people listening, what would, like now knowing what you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure you help your guys and girls with it now. New client meeting, I'm excited about the, like they fit sort of, I think they're a great business. They've got low turnover, fits our sort of ideal sort of type of client. And I think it could be a really great partnership. Mm hmm what would be the non-negotiable things that you plan for in that meeting now then or what would like for people listening what should they plan for non-negotiable as a minimum rather than going into these types of meetings just hoping it goes well trying to build a relationship and hopefully I'll win some business like what would be the non-negotiable prep for these potential new client meetings?
1: Yeah it's a great question and I think it starts with how like you mentioned there like how you qualify the prospect. So. From the qualification phase, that's how you do your prep. So let's just say company building out a product function, they're gonna need 20 hires, which is what happened back in August. It's then running through the data and analytics on the company. So understanding where they've acquired talent from before. Because usually LinkedIn analytics is great nowadays. Everyone everyone uses it, it's it's really clever. So I'm always looking at that, but then let's just say in this instance where they're having to grow different squads, it's having, I, I honestly just sit down with Sean and say, Sean, okay, this is what we have. This is what they wanna build. I need an idea when they go into the meeting, they might need two product managers here and a product owner here, and maybe a designer here and an engineer here. I need to understand the formation of what the squad, what a good squad looks like, what a good formation of a business looks like. So, so I think first and foremost, having that high level knowledge is super critical. And then also, I think in that meeting I said about product operations, which is quite a new thing in products. It's been around, but it's super new. So it's asserting yourself as that expert as well, because the CPO goes, you know, I thought about it, but I'm not, not too much. It's something I need to come back to you on. And you instantly assert yourself as the, almost the, the expert, the dominant in that meeting. So I think, I think that's the first and foremost. Then it's okay. Exclusivity is key. We only work at that in terms of business. And then from a, I guess from a research perspective, it's more just the analytics and just looking at the squad formation, looking at the person I'm working with, looking yeah. at the company we're working with, what's attractive about them to sell, getting them to tell me why somebody should work there. So uh, the meetings for me now are more on the client than me delivering on the meetings because people already know what I can do. I already know what I can do. Mm. So it's almost kind of like the prep is there. The rest of it's in that meeting, you're finding out, are they the right partner for me? Ethically, are they the right partner for me? From a values perspective, do they fit? That's kind of what I'm looking for and that's what I'm shaping. But prep wise, it's just run your analytics, look at who who goes where. If you've got a Sean, and try and look at a squad formation squad yeah. like have a look at are they a proleg like organization chat GBT is fantastic now you just stick a bit of information in there, tell me about this company, so make sure you know who the company is, the prospect, but also try and understand what the vision is, and you often get that for the meeting anyway
0: mm-hmm. so just quickly
2: mm-hmm.
0: so non negotiable then would be I go into client meeting and I would be able to articulate or understand that so it looks like you've typically hired people from these types of companies. Mm-hmm why is that or like you've picked up on that and then and then the other thing that you said there was also in preparation is there anything that you can share within the market or just any sort of industry insights that could be also really helpful as well so yeah yeah like you said where they typically hire people from where does it look like they like to hire people from make sure you go into those, pre- uh, yeah, prepared on that. And then also what insight can I, or value can I give this business that could mm-hmm. also showcase my expertise?
1: Yeah, million percent. So the first point is super simple. As a recruiter, if you go and find a profile from that type of company, there's a chance you might do a deal with them because they like that type of profile fit for their organization. So mm. simple recruitment is that. It's how I did my first permanent placement. I asked the VP of product, where do you want this person to come from? Mm. I literally went and found someone from that company, sent them over, and we did a deal in 19 days from start to then. Mm. This side of things here is more, I'm not saying it's going to be hard for a junior recruiter because they just need to call somebody who's a CPO and ask them for some time. This bit here is the high-level consulted part. And this is how you stand out as a recruiter, whereas I understand how now with Sean and my experience, how to form a product function. What goes into a product function? Product operations is something which again it is relatively new, but it's the glue which holds now product teams together. So my job is to go and yeah, be the solution driver for building your talent base, but also be that partner where, I'm thinking about doing this and this, what's worked best for you? Like what's worked really great for other companies as well? Mm. Like when you built this team here, what do they do? And that's kind of the bit which-
0: Yeah, that's the insight.
1: Yeah, and that's the bit which you, that kind of comes with experience and asking the right questions. So if you don't know as a recruiter, call somebody who does.
0: Mm. could and even be someone in your office that's got more experience than you.
1: One million percent. I remember going to a meeting with a chief data scientist. I knew nothing about data science and I called the data scientist up and I said, okay, just please forgive me. I've not got a job for you, but I might have after tomorrow. And just please forgive me. Cause I just need some help. Got this meeting tomorrow, but I don't know what to talk about. What would you suggest? And they just said, ask them about the data landscape. <laughs> So the first question that I asked was just taught me through what your data landscape looks like. They came alive. The rest of the meeting was really easy.
2: Mm.
1: So sometimes even if you don't know, ask somebody who does. But that's the bit there which you almost can't be taught. That comes with a bit of experience mm. and asking the right people the right questions.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about this entrepreneurial journey then. I know we went on a few different times, <laughs> but I, I enjoyed okay. it. So why don't we just dive straight into like my product path? Because I know that's, I feel like that's, yeah, what you're really excited about. Mm-hmm. Obviously you started your recruitment entrepreneurial journey with Idle Talent, right? Yeah. So why don't we just dive straight into my product path? So firstly, how would you describe my product path? Firstly, like, let's just start there and then I'm gonna hit you with some questions. This podcast is proudly sponsored by VinCherry. And I wanted to start this year by just making things a bit more clear. Last year, VinCherry joined forces with the Access Group. VinCherry has always spoken openly about their ambition to become the recruitment operating system. By partnering with a heavyweight like the Access Group who shares their vision of providing a single operating system for the front, middle, and back office of recruitment firms, there are now no limits to how far VinCherry can take the platform and the experience they provide all of their customers. VinCherry will also become the flagship CRM within Access Recruitment's portfolio or products. It's the same people, same platform, just way more firepower, which is why I'm really excited to continue my partnership with VinCherry this year. Just to make things a bit more clear as well, VinCherry is offering a really simple offer for all of you listeners of this podcast. If you listen to this podcast, and find that VinCherry is a great solution for your recruitment business, you will get 10% off your user license. That's 10% off. Use the show notes and there'll be a link in there to get that discount and book in a demo.
1: Yeah, it's a always a good question when people ask me this. I think from a visionary perspective, and I obviously started this, when you started this, this, this podcast, you suggested that everyone wants to change recruitment. Everyone's talking about it, but no one's actually doing it. Mm. We've been doing it behind the scenes, but not talking about it. So just providing a good service and a partnership approach is a minimum requirement of a a successful recruiter now. That's not change. That really isn't change. What we're doing at my product and how i describe us is we're wrapping technology around people to create change in a sector, which is a fantastic sector. It's a sector that I'm passionate about and and that I love. And it's a sector which can make or break companies. So we're a SaaS driven organization that every money that we make, every, every, every fee that we make, we put back into the technology. We put back into the people. So we're a tech for good SaaS organization who is streamlining recruitment services and to build fantastic product and technology teams. I think that's probably the easiest way to describe us without getting too deep. I know we're going to go into yeah, the details yeah. shortly,
0: but no, that's fine, yeah. it's probably
1: the best way to describe us.
0: So that, that's the vision. Mm-hmm. But let's keep it real right. So, but like so far, mm-hmm. that's the vision, but... Most of the revenue so far has come from recruitment.
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, we're building the technology via yeah. the use of that. And here's the interesting thing. So self-service, from a consumer behavior standpoint, self-service is ever-growing every year. I think I read this stat that 86% of behavior in supermarkets, for example, is self-service nowadays.
2: Mm.
1: Everyone uses kiosks. I'm not sure last time you went to the supermarket, but I assume you may have used a kiosk.
0: Yeah, it depends how big the shop is.
1: Yeah, So, but, but that, that's part of it. And when you look at COVID, the QR codes, everyone orders... QR codes now, or they were. A lot of the stuff we do, and a lot of the people that are going to be hiring managers over the next decade, it's going to be self-service. Mm. However, self-service isn't the only answer. Hence why when you go to a restaurant, you've got the self-serve aspects, but you've got the people there to help deliver it. Mm. So it's kind of, you've got to combine those two aspects to make that change and, w- and make it work.
0: Yeah. So what I just wanted to get your thoughts on,
2: because
0: mm-hmm. I thought this was interesting. Why have you sort of really lent into like saving money fixed fee because on your website you've got Mm -hmm. two clear pricing structures Mm -hmm. standard cost six grand following process recruitment interview by a product recruitment expert culture assessment self-assessment cv submission i think that's up to a certain salary Mm -hmm. what salary is that up to Uh, up to a hundred thousand and anything after that it's a percentage yeah and then executive you've got 10k Mm -hmm. following process recruitment expert interview culture assessment psych assessment role specific assessment you're interviewed by a cpo background checks
1: oh sorry that one's 100 the other one's 70
0: yeah so up to 70 yeah the
1: other other one's 100 Then after 100 it's a percentage and we've actually got one for now for below 70
2: Mm.
1: and the fundamental why have you done that disruption (laughs) okay to be frank it's disruption Mm. when you use technology correctly you always have a great a great talent pool of of, people of product people which means that we actually do more deals off the back of this pricing model so we're gonna break down one customer that we have. They're my longest standing customer and we've been utilizing this process with them. We saved them 84,000 pounds last year on recruitment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We reduced the time to hire on their roles by 11 days and we've increased retention. And we've actually made more money over the last year than we did for the previous year. And we've reduced the consultant's time in doing the roles. And the reason that why we're able to do that is because we're plugged into the hiring roadmap. So we can almost pipeline talent in advance, for, in, in, yeah, in advance for, the, for the partners. So the reason why we've done that is to disrupt the sector. That's kind of one example of a customer that we've worked with a long time. We've just been competing with digital agency who we all know in the marketplace, and two other companies for a new fintech company, one of the largest pre-seed rounds in fintech history in the UK. They're working with us exclusively now, they're working with us first, and they got rid of the other two agencies. And when you look at our competitors. We are now starting to win the business from them. One, because of the cost. Right, We're in a recession right now. And if any recruiter thinks that they can still charge 20 to 30% fees in a recession and think they're going to do as much business as what they have in the last two or three years, they're in a dreamland because people are not going to spend that. They're looking at ways to cut costs. That's why, unfortunately, the talent acquisition teams in most companies have been cut first. It sucks. It really sucks. However, the pricing model that we've generated is the longer term vision that nobody sees yet. This is two, three, four, five years down the line because our pricing model won't change. We'll create different SaaS models, but it won't change. So we're increasing quality whilst driving down costs and that's disruption.
0: But surely, like this, this is what I wanted to ask you about mm-hmm. because if you're being chosen over price, mm-hmm. is that where you want to start the relationship? It's like not, I'm, using yeah. I'm using Ash's business because they're cheaper. Yeah, why, why would you want to start there?
1: It's not about being cheaper. It's about having more feature layers in. Okay. So... How many recruitment companies have a chief product officer? Someone who's got 20 years experience doing the job.
0: Yeah, not as many.
1: No. Well, I don't know of, I'm not sure about mm. you, but I don't know of anyone who's got a CPO in, as, as an agency in their business.
2: Mm.
1: So, number one, we've got a chief product officer who on the market, and I don't want to market him out, but he'd be two to 300 grand a year salary. So he's, he's in that. No, I get that.
0: You've got the industry expertise. Yeah, I get that.
1: Uh, and then we've got the understanding of what each individual role is. Interview processes for each individual role, rather than just doing, okay, top before you you're looking for, match the job up, ask a bit around the skills, but not really understanding it. We've got that deep level there. Cultural assessment that we've created. I mean, I don't know many companies do a cultural assessment, skills assessment. So the reason why the price is more competitive is because we've got more talent than most of the other companies and we're able to utilize that talent better. You know yourself here, Shem, when you're in recruitment how many people come out to you asking you for, to look for a job and you can't help everyone. Mm. You, you really can't. Our model kind of helps us to do that because it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. And all we're doing really is redistributing fantastic product talent into the marketplace. So whilst we're in a recession right now, when people talk about partnership, and when people talk about championing change how many of those companies have gone to their talent to, to their partners right now and said, yeah, you know what? It's been fantastic the last two years. Thanks for all the business. You're struggling right now. We'll have to drop our fees by a couple of percent to actually help you through that period. Most recruiters won't do that. And the company won't allow them to that because they don't actually care about the partnership to care about the money. Mm. Whereas we're a partnership driven business. Every penny that someone spends of us is put back into building our technology out to champion the change for the future. We're giving the people back the power to choose how they want to be represented in the marketplace to level bias, to literally have the option of who and what they are when they want to be, how they want to be represented in the marketplace.
2: Mm.
1: And that's part of what we're building here at My Product Path. So everyone who joins us and partners with us, that's the change which they're they're, they're championing. So yes, it is more cost effective, but we're not the cheapest we're just more cost efficient and cost effective and it annoys people. And I, I'll be honest with you, it's kind of more satisfactory because it annoys people to me than anything else. So I don't like the words cheap, mm. but when you look at technology and this is what recruiters don't understand right now is technology is going to simply impact the business over the next 10 years in which we're in. Look at ChatGBT, look at what it's just done. Look at how it's ruffled the Google's feathers really, really quickly. Mm. We are naive to think that technology will not positively impact our sector. It won't solve it. AI is not going to solve everything by the way. It isn't, it really isn't. However, we've priced ourselves for five years time and we're taking a short-term hit for the long-term vision. And that's how disruption innovation is created. What, what does that short-term hit actually look like? It just means we make less money on fees. Mm. It's quite simple. I mean, some companies of our competitors there, I mean, one of them sent an email to one of my consultant saying our, our, our average fee is 18,000 pounds. It's ridiculous. It doesn't need to be that high. And most people hate me saying this, by the way, in recruitment, it doesn't need to be that high. It's mm. fantastic for them, but we're now in a recession. They're gonna lose business and we're gonna, when we are winning more business because, of our, because we are priced more competitively.
0: Mm. Just, I just, look, like, I've been on a bit of a journey of this with mm-hmm. this myself and in my own business. And yeah. I understand what you're saying, but I feel like you're also talking about the other great things you, that you built and that you do in your service. So why would you not charge a premium for that? Do you know what I mean?
1: Because it doesn't create change. Here's
0: the thing, when we
1: went through the ideation phase to create my product path, I did that during the pandemic. Mm. And we built the use case around what the users wanted. Users being who? The product people.
0: What the hiring managers are? Hiring
1: managers and the candidates. Okay. So in order to be the voice of the customer, which is what the job of a product person is, we've got to be the voice of the customer from from a change perspective. So I had the idea for my product path and I like to use the Trafford Center as I always use the Trafford Center because I think it's a fantastic place. You go there, it's an all-in-one experience. So that's kind of what I wanted to create. And that's why we also launched a mentoring platform as well as the aftercare piece. But if you look at it from from now, the ideation phase, I went to over a dozen CPOs. And this is my idea, what do you think? And Sean was a person who most understood and was most aligned to my vision. It's the reason why we partnered together. And from here, we speak to candidates every single day, and we take a pool of the candidates to ask them, okay, what do you actually want from a recruitment service? Mm-hmm. And then we built a model around what they wanted. So when you look at the, some of the fundamental challenges, is skills fit and culture fit is, is some of the hardest bits to get correct in recruitment. That's from, the, from what they said, cost is number three. Cost from hiring managers. Correct. So, the cost of recruitment people suggest is too high. Okay. And that's from the feedback over the last, what, two years now. It's in the top three of everything in which we do. And that's from polls on LinkedIn. Mm. That's from actual feedback and when we're asking, when we're speaking to, to, to customers and everything. People think recruitment is too expensive. It is too expensive. Mm. But we're salespeople. So, we want to try and keep it high. We <laughs> want to try and push as much as we can. But is that ethically correct? And is that actual creating? Positive change, not in my opinion.
0: So, when you were having those conversations, was there anything you were surprised by when you're saying, "What do you want from a recruitment service?"
1: Um, And keep in mind, Hisham, at this stage, I I was a generalist agency recruiter. I'd started my business. I was doing traditional percentage models. Mm. So, the cost for me, because it's not just the cost of the of the um, actual fee, it's the wasted time of the hiring managers interviewing. And when you actually factor in, and then obviously from when people leave from a rebate perspective, the cost of a bad hire is pretty significant. And people don't add in the fact that hiring managers' time to actually interview costs companies a lot of money. And they've got to do this multiple times and not get the end result. You lose thousands, thousands thousands of pounds it takes for for hiring managers to actually interview. So I think the cost was surprising to me, being that I was a percentage recruiter billing lots of money and making good money. When I actually broke it down... And put myself in their shoes, I got it and I understood it. So I, I do appreciate what you said. saying. I, I, I do get it. And we are adding more features in, but why didn't the features in is because it's what the users want.
2: Mm.
1: No, yeah, I get that. And how many recruiters, and you speak to a lot of them, I mm. started a business and actually asked people what they want. We do what's right mm. for us because it's to make money. And it's to start a business and it's to because you can make more money doing that. But how many you actually gone to it, actually, okay, what do you actually want from a service? Mm. How do you want to be presented?
0: You, That's a great you, exercise. Yeah. Mm.
1: You'll know better than me, but I, I don't know of many who are actually go and do that.
0: No, look, I'm, I'm a big believer of that one of the values in my company is customer obsessed. And the way mm. that I've gone about building the business that I'm building is with actual feedback from paying customers and their feedback, what do they want more of? What do they think isn't so great? Like, I, I totally get that. I think, yeah, I'm just challenging you a bit on it because like, I just, I just think, yeah, I think you've obviously explained your approach and Mm -hmm. I completely understand you're creating a service that people want Mm -hmm. rather than just thinking what's best for us. I I totally get that. I just think I just found it interesting that it looked like you really led with price Mm
2: -hmm.
0: when you're creating something that more people actually want. And I think if you, recruitment doesn't have a good reputation, And if you start relationships with, like I said, you you may not want to be like the word cheaper, but if the internal conversations are, we're gonna use my product path, they're a lot cheaper than the others. Yeah, which happens. Like, is that not just a quick race to the bottom? Do you know what I mean? And like, Is that how we're gonna level up the perception of our industry that we just use the cheapest, you know? Because I understand the thought process here is like, because typically you'll hear people that charge and work 10% Mm -hmm. are just spraying prey shit service, all that, right? But it sounds like you're charging less, but you're also building a product and a service that people actually want. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming it's just boiled down to, yeah, you are the reducing the price, but you've reduced it to a price that you think is more fair, that you can actually build a business on, Mm -hmm. whilst also building a service around it that people actually want.
1: Yeah, it's what the users want. Mm. So why am I building what I want? I'm not a product manager.
0: Why did you end up on six grand then? There must have been, is there some science behind that? Or like the six grand and 10 grand? It was the feedback from
1: the customers, the feedback. And also, it, again, I go back to this word disruption. So I think first and foremost, the customer is, the, is at the heart of our journey. Mm. And the customer isn't just a client, it's the candidate.
2: Mm.
1: Everybody who interacts with us, they're at the heart of our journey and we are building what is right for them. Are we gonna make less money than other companies? Short term, yes. Are we gonna make more money long term? Yes, because it's a fundamental fact of long term strategy. And there's so many different analogies. Look at Le- LeBron James investing into Liverpool. Long term strategy is you're going to make lots of money. You got offered 50 million from McDonald's to go and do that. He actually invested some money into a pizza chain. He's now making 40 million a year, or it's worth 40 million. It's longer term strategy. And money isn't the forefront of my mind. Acquiring customers and providing good service obviously is at the forefront of my mind because the more customers we acquire, the more disruption we make. So the pricing model, we've got 4, 6, 10k. That's, I mean, if we're competing, we charge a percentage. I've got to make that clear because generally we will turn it down because we're not going to do it. But if we're competing against other companies, we will charge a percentage. Exec search is a percentage. That's high level. It's different recruitment than the generalist not to 100k. What's
0: the typical percentage?
1: If we're competing, it's
0: 20%. Okay. So you only charge that pricing model when you're not competing?
1: 1 million percent because when
0: it's exclusive or
1: Mm -hmm. my time's worth something still like i'm I'm, I'm not going to be working competing against people for for not like for Mm. for minimal like price it doesn't work like that but the price is based upon what the users want and i'll always come back to what the users want because that's how the future of recruitment it it, it is going to move that way people don't like it and we get we've been criticized by some rival companies and i call them rival companies because they're bigger than us and we're that startup who they're probably looking at thinking, well, actually, they're taking a few of our clients away. They're only small clients, that'd be fine. We've got two of the largest companies in the world working on our SaaS products right
0: now. Mm. Criticize what? Because you're charging less fees?
1: Yeah, because we're taking their business away from them. Mm. Which, And we're also providing better service. And we're providing additional features. And when you look at the first people that we ever placed in my product path 18 months ago, they're still at the same companies. One's been promoted.
2: Mm.
1: Like, it, it just comes down to doing the job correctly. If you do your job correctly as a recruiter, you don't worry about a free month rebate period. You don't worry about the, you don't really worry about anything because you've done your job correctly. So we are more cost effective, but people don't see the vision yet. People don't understand that the technology is going to drive costs down. Mm. And if people think it's not, then they're living in the dreamland because technology will disrupt our sector. Mm. It will. It's not going to solve everything. I I always say to right from the start. It's not going to solve everything. You can't solve everything with technology. But Why can't it improve it? Because it's not really improved the sector yet. We're still a million years away from like being anywhere near where we need to be. We're Mm. still probably stuck in the nineties and we're waiting for that change to happen. So we're part of that change and it is going to irritate a lot of the big agencies because we're going to take business away from them and more for it. So the analogy that I used before with our biggest client where we actually made more placements and did more money and actually reduced the the consultant's time of delivery. That's the example we'll use because it might seem like we're more cost effective but we're more profitable at the same time.
0: Mm. I know we went on a tangent there but okay. I think that's like you're you're passionate about like you said doing things for for the positive change. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm glad we spoke about that and that's, that's what I was just really curious to get your thoughts on yeah. and your your perspective on. So like, yeah, look, I think for me, It's just, like, fair play. I think I just wanted to understand why, yeah, that pricing piece, and and you you shared why why that is. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, I definitely don't think just being cheaper is the is the way that we're going to change the perception of our industry and i know that isn't what you're doing that isn't obviously what you're doing no and as you've said we offer this pricing when we're working in partnership when we're working exclusive or yeah we've got a partnership and when we are competing then that's when it's back to the traditional methods just done that
1: and when you look at what i've seen one agency who we would class as a competitor they've just done an embedded talent model Mm. which is cheaper than our fees Mm. yet we're an embedded talent partner to a degree because it's partnership approach, yet we charge our fees. So when people look at it being more cost-effective, is it? Mm. I mean, it, it is for transactional recruitment, but from a partnership perspective, it's still more cost-effective overall. When you've got now companies doing their embedded talent partner, which they wouldn't have done 10 years ago, because they wouldn't have, they're now putting it in as a service because they understand, actually, yes, yeah, disruption. Actually, yeah, the companies have done this. They've actually removed some business away from us. And that's what's happened. Mm. So what we're doing is building a model which for the next five ten years will do the same thing.
0: So let's just end on then because this is the, what you're building your business around. What does a good quality modern recruitment business look like in five years from your perspective?
1: The technology wrapped around the people. That's
0: innovation. Mm. What does that mean? Was like technology wrapped around people? You'll find out in six months when we launch the <laughs> software. <laughs> no, but like it was high level. Like what? What are some of the thing? What What are some of the things that technology can enable the people part? Like what? Talk to us about. Some of the things
1: I think it's making efficiency in recruitment because you and I both know when you do this job, you get bogged down in admin, you get bogged mm. down in loads of tasks, sort of, I guess, minor tasks which you shouldn't be doing. So, number one, it's making things more efficient is critical to being a successful recruiter on a, on a bit more of a global scale because when you look at. The amount of admin time, the amount of bullhorn time that you do or any of see CRM much you use um, or, or whatever it is, it's just mental how much, how much is used. Communication with candidates. Like companies are really poor of how they communicate with candidates. Really poor. So having a, a system in place where things are more visible to the candidate makes a lot more sense to me. And it's kind of like candidates nowadays want a choice and they want to feel like they're in control of the process and we need to give them that. So if we just think sending a CV, doing a deal, specking the CV over, that's gonna be the the long-term answer to recruitment. It's not gonna be that. So in five years time, fees, I think you're gonna have two models. You're gonna have the models which are a bit more partnership focused where they're looking after the companies correctly. And there's always gonna be the place for the agency recruiter as it is now, doing the fees in which they are now. Because some sectors don't require what we're doing, by the way. So like the construction sector, for example, it's not really needed for us. It's different type of work. Like, it's not the same same as what we're doing. But for me, it's always technology wrapped around the people. And that's how the disruption is going to change. And that's how things are going to change in the sector. Service is just one aspect of change.
2: Mm.
1: It's not really change. It's just doing your job correctly.
0: <laughs> see, no, I think I'm I'm so interested to see how things play out. That's
1: why I want to do it now, because I want to come back in 18 months and I want to have this conversation again. Mm. And it's almost like a time capsule to see whether... I know I'm correct for what people want. It's how this is executed will be the, yeah, the, su- the success or, or failure of the business.
0: Look, the thing that I take away, which I massively respect, is I think, yeah, I think if you want long-term success as a recruitment business, getting closer to what it is that your clients and candidates actually want from you from a service is the right approach. I, c- I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. Rather than just focusing on what is going to be best suited to us. Like, I, I totally get that and, and I buy into that. I just think for long-term sustainable success, if you are very close to what your customers want and you build your services around that, then, yeah, I, I, like, it, it makes complete sense. So that that's why, yeah, super interested to see how it plays out and how recruitment companies deliver that, how they approach that. You're obviously making your bets on how you're approaching that, mm-hmm. which I really respect. And, um, yeah, look, I think I wanted to challenge you on a few things, but it's only coming from a place of just curious, curiosity, you know, yeah. and I respect the journey that you're going on and I'm just really interested to see how it all plays out.
1: Yeah. No, one, one million percent. And I love being challenged on it, by the way. So, so, so if anyone wants to challenge me after this podcast, please feel free to, to to do that. We have actually been challenged by a client to say, actually, we want to pay you more. Mm. So I'm like, well, pay us what you want then. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I know the future of what our industry, like the recruitment sector, I love it and it's amazing. The future of the industry is changing and ChatGBT, if people haven't noticed that and I'll always use this as an example, it's going to take that one moment like that for people to sit up and think, ah, okay, I need to change because most recruitment business owners right now are just thinking about the now. They're not thinking about two, three, four, five years. I'm five years in advance. I'm not thinking about the now. Mm. And that's going to be the success and failure of a lot of companies over the next five years is, okay, how visionary are they? If they think the status quo of recruitment right now is gonna work in five years time when the Gen Z start managing and hiring people, and they don't understand who the, the, the user personas are of the people that we're, we're working with, they're gonna fail and they're, they're not gonna do this correctly. And that's what we understand is the personas of people hiring now is different.
0: Mm. Ash, thanks for gone on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope there were plenty of golden nuggets for you to take away. As you'll know, I'm your host here of the Recruitment Mentors podcast, but I'm also the founder of Recruitment Mentors. We're a online subscription-based learning and education platform. We're on a mission to help thousands of recruiters achieve their professional goals and successfully progress their careers through modern and engaging online learning. If you're a recruitment business owner listening to this, there's a good chance that you value self-development, personal development. You're trying to develop a culture of continuous improvement but we've partnered with a number of grown recruitment companies who were struggling to understand how they can invest more in their people, how they can upskill them more quickly without spending more time, without having to spend thousands of pounds of external trainers. And we've ended up being a really great fit, modern fit for recruitment teams. We can ultimately help you get more out of your teams by giving your people access to modern and engaging online learning, which they can access on demand.